Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. All right, everybody, long range 1004. I don't know how much longer we're going to be able to keep this up, that just continually adding upon, but we thought of perhaps one last idea. Every time we come out with a new long range 1000 blank, we think maybe we got one more trick up our sleeve here. So who knows? Maybe we'll keep going. I don't know. You'll have to throw out suggestions. We're always asking for suggestions. We have we've had some listeners. We've had a listener special now, so we are we are listening. I was toying back and forth, Mark, between that intro and also telling everybody that I just ate a dog treat. But I... Well, yeah. you've opened up that can of worms now. I might as well talk about it. Well, it smelled like pumpkin pie, but it didn't taste like it. It didn't look like it. From the expression on your face... It didn't look like it tasted right. like pumpkin pie. When you read the ingredients, it sounded delicious. Right. Yeah, it did. Very human food-esque. So if uh, if anybody's watching on YouTube now, we have confirmed the cameras are on. I don't know how long that joke will. I'll keep pegging myself <laughs> for that one. But if you're watching on YouTube right now, you're probably wondering, why have we not yet addressed the elephants in the room, if you will? In front of us uh, lie two incredibly uh, one big rifle and one bigger rifle, as Ian, who has joined us before and who's in the room now, uh, described. And uh, we also have a new guest, Jeff, here, who will uh, let introduce himself before we get too, uh, too into the weeds here on Long Range 1004. But, uh, yeah, Jeff, thanks for coming out. And uh, for the listeners out there, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, any fun facts, or, uh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, my name's Jeff Heeg. I'm out of North Central Wisconsin, uh, grew up in the country. Um, I still got my first little long-range rifle, which was a 22. Growing up in the country, it was kind of fun. You'd sit there and try to do what we're doing today at a longer distance. And and um, I kind of phased out of that a little bit, shot some professional archery up until about 2010. And then I got back into shooting long-distance rifle. Mm-hmm. I think what really gave me the bug back then and around 2010 is we were out in Ohio and at that point, I was shooting a 338 Lapua out of a Barrett 95, 98 Bravo. And my son and I were out there in March that year. And, and uh, the guy that has the range, he's, it's called Thunder Valley out in, in uh, Coshocton, Ohio. And we were on one of the very first stages. And he says, you want to see what this thing will do? And I said, sure, we're out here, you know. And uh, he says, you think you got an enough adjustment? I said, oh, yeah, we got lots of adjustment, you know, Vortex Razor. Sure. Yeah, yeah. The only thing is I forgot how far we were already out to, so um, I didn't have that much left to dial up. But that was my first taste of shooting past 3,000 yards. and 3,000? We were sitting there shooting, and you could see the splash because the area that was uh, the target range had just a little bit of water on so you'd just see a big puck when it would hit, and... I thought, holy smokes, this is, I wouldn't want to be standing on the other end. You know, back then, a little bit of a rookie at this, I was still probably in a six-foot six foot area at that distance with a 338. And ever since that day, I was trying to figure out how could you do this again without having to do what I had out there because what I actually had is I was dialed up, then I used my reticle, yeah. went up 10 mils, seen that spot, had to go up another 10 mils, and there was my aiming point. So you're basically just aiming into the sky. I was well, almost, actually, there almost. was a, there was a hillside there, so oh, it was pretty okay. slick, and I had a really definite aiming point, which was the bottom of a telephone pole. <laughs> Problem was, is while I was aiming at that, I didn't see the target. Yeah. 
So we did a couple volleys of that, and he says, well, I'm going to show you a little trick. He says, you aim at that spot you're supposed to, and you turn down your mag until the target is right at the bottom of the bell. So I sat there, and I did that. I don't remember how many, how much power I had to drop down, but all of a sudden, there it was, right at the bottom of the bell. He says, now aim there. And I'll tell you what, when you're used to looking at those crosshairs, and now you got to aim and look way down at the bottom of that bell. It doesn't feel natural. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, uh by God, it was it was impressive. That was kind of fun. And then, so a few years later, because I shoot 260 quite a bit, I wanted to get back into a uh, long-range rifle. And I was trying to figure out what we were going to do. So I I came across a guy out in Nebraska that built uh, a 375 uh, VM2, which is technically like a 505 African neck down to a 375. And it takes a little bigger bolt face than the standard Shitek round. I love the fact that you're necking down to a 375. So yeah, right. <laughs> I like the fact that he said that he had a 260, but he wanted a long range rifle. <laughs> <laughs> so, but hey, we shoot our 260s out to 1307 here in Wisconsin quite okay. a bit. I yeah. mean, those are little hot rods. They're yeah, fun yeah. to shoot. So, anyways, it took a little while to get that project done, and what we did on on those rifles because we got a couple other 375 snipe techs, is which is kind of comparable to that is to, in order to be able to shoot to 3,000 yards plus and be able to aim at it, we uh, mounted 80 MOA rails on them. Incredible. Now, a lot of people would sit there and look at it and say, well, how are you going to shoot a 100-yard target? Well, what we did is we mounted all Gen 2 razors on it. Okay. And, and theoretically on the MRADs, you have 28.5 mils that you can use in there on the adjustment. So with the ADMOA rail, most people will sit there when they're trying to zero a scope, they'll run a turret to try to get to zero. We actually went the other way with it. Hmm. So we were actually getting farther away from the zero than uh, on the opposite side of the reticle than what folks were trying to do. So at the end of the day, our 100-yard zero was a 9-mil hold under. Oh, so okay. we're still okay. using that hash mark. We still got a reference, which is like 30-some inches of actual impact over the crosshairs. But the nice part was is when we finally start getting into the usable area, which is with these guns, you're shooting maybe 1,500 yards and beyond. Well, now we're almost right at the crosshairs. Mm -hmm. So now we got 28.5 mils of adjustment and then 10 more mils of holdover. Yeah. And that was the key to be able to shoot and hit a dot at 100 yards if somebody asked you to, and then still be able to handle 3,000 yards with those rifles. That's pretty slick. That so. is very slick. Now, we're talking about the rifles. Man, there's, there's so many things that we can get into, and if you haven't gathered by now, by clicking on the title of this podcast and by what Jeff just discussed, we're talking about ELR, Extreme Long Range Shooting. And to uh, to Jeff's point, when we talk about a 260 that can go out to 1,300, a, a hot rod cartridge like that, uh, that that doesn't actually even grace yet the essentially entry in uh, like range in extreme long range shooting, which from what I've gathered, it's not ELR unless it's fifteen hundred yards and beyond. Well, right? it's, well, it's interesting you bring it up, and if we back up just a little bit and talk about ELR and kind of like what it is, there's a couple definitions that have persisted till today about ELR, and um, the one that I kind of subscribe to, I think it's cool, is. It's, it's a rifle system, taking a rifle system and shooting it at a distance that's typically 
beyond what most people think of as the max effective range. Hmm. Or another way to look at it is taking a particular rifle and shooting it at transonic to subsonic velocities <coughs> downrange. So the reason why I make that distinction is, you know, a growing subset of ELR right now is rimfire ELR. And you think, oh, a 22 long rifle, you know, oh, that's yeah. not hot rod cartridge by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but think about it. If you're shooting a 22 at 250, 300, 350, maybe 400 yards, that absolutely is ELR. You're past that transonic uh, region of that 22 long rifle uh, starting velocity, and you're having to negotiate the same kind of challenges that you are with a big rifle like this. Yeah. You need you need massive amounts of come up in your scope. You're dealing with um, second order variables like spin drift and things mm. that you wouldn't normally have to deal with with a 22. So in my book, that's maybe even, you could argue, a more accessible um, for everyday person, um, part of ELR is rimfire ELR. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So, and in, in, with that being said, part of what ELR uh, comes down to is is essentially, it is cartridge and platform based. You know, yeah. So to, to sort of say to somebody, you know, hey, you're not shooting ELR if you're shooting a 22 out to 500 yards because it's not 1500. It's like, <laughs> okay, well. You know, right? If <laughs> we're not shooting mortars here. If you're shooting like, your thirty thirty Winchester at seven hundred yards, you're an ELR shooter. You know, okay. You're, you're shooting right. your three hundred eight at fourteen fifteen hundred. You're ELR. Yeah. So. Yeah. Now, when we discussed most everything, and what we discussed in these in this series has has kind of led up to a thousand though, and I think what what so many people are interested in probably you've piqued a lot of interest in this ELR rimfire kind of thing, but you know to kind of take this that step beyond is is to discuss shooting out at these very extreme distances. My first question was when you look at guns of these nature, you guys are shooting out these guns. These aren't ones that, uh, like, you know, rim fires that, that are on the table in front of us. We'll have to get into them, like we said, for those listening. Uh, these are going out to some pretty far ranges, right? You, uh, I, I believe, Ian, you said you built up this gun for what was it, the King of Two Mile? Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of funny. Uh, Jeff is, uh, you know, like a neighbor here in uh, Wisconsin. Um, 100 miles north, but uh, I didn't meet him until we were out in the desert at this event called the King of Two Mile, and that was um, 2017, I believe. Yep. And um, so full disclosure, Jeff Heeg is an ELR competitor. Mm-hmm. Ian Clem is a guy who happened to shoot an ELR match. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, for the rest of the conversation, that's, that's kind of like our pedigrees, right? Um, so Jeff is... He travels around the country and competes in a lot of different events, and I defer to his expertise. I um, I thought it would be neat to try it, and I wanted to see what it was like. So at the time, I thought I was building this big, bad rifle. Uh, come to find out, when I get to this event, it's kind of like the the entry-level pea shooter of the, of the class. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so this is kind of like what a typical three thirty eight uh, Lapua rifle is going to look like if you try to ring out all its potential. So um, a little bit longer barrel than normal. I think that might be a 34-inch barrel, maybe 36, I can't remember. But a little bit um, longer stock wheelbase, so from the bipod back to the rear is a little bit longer than normal. Okay. I for impro- more stability. Yeah, for more stability. I improved the cartridge, so for the folks watching, this is a 338 Lapua, but it's been improved. So it's a version of the Ackley improved 40-degree uh, shoulder, a little less body taper, a little bit more capacity. But you can still shoot 338 Lapua uh, factory rounds in it. It'll still headspace on that neck-shoulder junction. So 
Um, but do you see how far this burger 300 grain uh, OTM is sitting in that neck? The throat on this um, chamber job is really long, and that's once again so we can seat that bullet out further and fit more powder in the in the case. Okay, that's what I was going to say, because that thing looks like it's peeking out there quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the boat tail bearing surface transition is probably halfway up the neck. Okay. Yeah, so wow. it's all powder back there. And I think uh, I settled on 106 grains of Vitivori N570, so a nice double base powder. And that's pushing this 300 grain 338 bullet at 3,100 feet per second. So okay, so when people talk about hot rotting, now we're we're really talking about hot yeah. Rotting. How fast is that going? Thirty one hundred for a three hundred grainer. Yeah. So uh, to me, that was a bunch of performance. That was gobs of performance, more than I had been used to shooting my three hundred eight. You know, at usual F class match. So I thought, wow, this is going to be like taking candy from a baby. And then I show up to this event, and you got guys like Jeff, and he'll talk about his rifle. Yeah. But it makes this in comparison just look pretty minimal. Um, <laughs> and uh, so competed in the event. Um, my partner and I, we built identical rifles so that we could kind of like um, be well-educated when it came time to switch positions. He would coach me, I'd shoot. I would coach him, he'd shoot. And I think we were the only team in 2017 to get into the finals uh, with a 338. Everyone else had 50 BMGs, uh, 408s, 375 Shytechs, 416s. Okay. Um, ended up finishing sixth place or so, but that was just a wonderful experience. Um, got, it really showed me kind of like what's important for ELR, what isn't important anymore. And it was, it was pretty eye opening in terms of, you know, these second order variables like spin drift, right? Like, so spin drift, you guys know what that is. We've talked about it in the 1001 and 1002. Yeah. A little bit. Can podcast. you remind? Yeah. So spin drift is like for a right hand twist barrel, it's the, it's the tendency for your projectile to actually have lateral displacement because of the differential in fluid friction on that bullet as it's rotating through the atmosphere. The bullet is almost gripping onto the air as it yeah, spins exactly. and, it's, and it's pushing off a little bit. Right. Right. Okay. right. So to put it into perspective, we talk about shooting at a thousand a lot. So when you shoot at a thousand with a normal high power rifle cartridge, you're going to experience five inches to 10 inches, somewhere in there, usually about seven inches of spin drift at a thousand. Okay. For a normal oh. uh, rifle cartridge. Wow, I didn't realize. I didn't yeah. Realize so that either. My, my, I guess my ballistics calculator was doing that. All that uh, <laughs> yeah. So like me. a half to three quarter minute. And it's something that you should be aware of and, you know, kind of compensate for, but you take that to 2000 yards. So we just doubled the distance and now you've got three and a half to four feet of spin drift hmm. and you're shooting at, you're not even at two miles yet either. No. Not at all. <laughs> That's just 2,000 yards. Yeah. So it's kind of neat to have a, a discipline where you need to start paying attention to those things more. All the errors get magnified and exacerbated, and you've got you've to deal with them. It's more of a science project, which is the enjoyable part for me about it. Jeff, I'll let you kind of talk about the, the other end of the bookend for yeah. the high-performance rifles. You actually hit it right on the money because I always tell folks that one of the, the most enjoyable parts about this is using all the science. Yeah. Basically I mean, everything before the shot. Because you you can be a good shooter. You can have a rifle that's going to shoot accurate. But the, the science behind it, I mean, when you sit there and you start talking even Coriolis, and I, I tell them that at 2,000 yards and beyond, a lot of people think you're a whack job when you, when you start bringing up them terms. But they're necessary because, like out there, you only had three attempts to hit that target. 
Yeah. And I always tell folks, when you got three attempts to hit it, and if you don't touch it, you're a spectator, you use all the science you can. Wow. So um, Three attempts to hit yep. it, two miles? <clears throat> well, um, the you got a cold bore shot that's uh, uh, right around 1760. It's a 16-inch round. That's the only target that you can shoot one shot at and miss and continue. Okay. So after the cold bore, you move down to 1,500 and some yards, and that's a, probably a 24 by 30-inch plate somewhere in that area. That target allows you five attempts. Okay. Now, if you hit one, two, or three times, you're going to accumulate points. Now, he's talking about the King of Two Mile format. So Correct. they're all a little bit different, but sure. they're kind of points games like this. And then after that, down there, you'll have a, a target around 17-something, 18-something. I know the... The last qualifier target was 2,048 or somewhere in that general ballpark. Mm. And those last three targets, you had three attempts to hit it to be able to continue on. And then on the finale, they started at 27, 28, and then I believe there was a target maybe in that 3,100 range, and then 35, 28 was the last target. So the and then were you getting three shots at all those targets as well then? On the finale? Or maybe not the finale, but like kind of the ones leading up? The ones leading up, um, you had the single, which you could pass if you missed, and then you had a five-rounder and a three, a three, and a three. Okay. And so the rules are um, you have to hit each target once within your allotted shots to move to the successive target. Otherwise, it's sort of like sudden death. Mm -hmm. You stop shooting, you're done. You just traveled 2,000 miles um, to shoot five rounds and go home. And and what a lot of folks don't understand, and you take like the 338 improved you know, there's there's people out there that have shot well beyond 2,000 yards, maybe into the 3,000 yard. But what's different is is we're back home, and it might be in the morning or evening. The environment is decent. It's calm. And that's where you can really get out there, and you're in your comfort zone, and you can get a lot of distance. But down there at the two-mile, you got nine minutes to get it done, and you're taking whatever wind you're going to get. And on that mountain ridge, there is wind. Oh, yeah. So yeah. that's where things really start to dance, and you get to see the people that can keep it together and communicate where they can actually keep moving on. And, I mean, they've, I've seen that first 1,500-some-yard target just knock down really, really good shooters because it's the elements. It's yeah. the, the luck of the draw, what time you're pulling in. But it's it's neat because I a good example last year, I was the very first shooter on the first morning of qualifying, and I had all my information all figured out for my distances. And I'm laying there, and they were waiting for something to get set up yet. And the Galdarn wind did 180 on me. Mm. It's like, oh, boy. <laughs> here goes spin drift. Here goes all this good stuff because that'll change because your left and right corrections are going to be different because you're, you're taking more off when you're fighting a bullet versus when it's going to roll with you. Okay. So... I, I told one of the guys to scramble and get my notebook because the night before everybody was having a good time, I sat there and did all those yardages with zero wind. So at least I could sit there and kind of walk my way out and then see where we were going to get pushed for a windage on. And it worked out really well, actually. And um, there's that's what I like about this. There's just a lot of, I mean, you can break this down in so many segments on preparation, the programs, what, oh my gosh! What to yeah. focus on the teamwork. I exactly. mean, uh, yeah, we we're gonna we're gonna like kind of elevate over the top of everything here, but we'll try try and get as nerdy as we can. But yeah, yeah like yeah. you said, there's so many aspects to it. The teamwork is very interesting. I mean, 
you can't. I, I was reading. I was reading somewhere because I started looking into ELR quite a bit before this podcast, and they were saying, you know, Hollywood totally does long range shooting a disservice because they act like you know some guy goes out there all macho solo and just somehow has this magic array of yeah. data in their head, and they can just kind of like oh, thousand yards or fifteen hundred, whatever, you know, and first round hit, no spotter, nothing, but. You can't do it without a spotter. Yeah. No. I mean, it kind of like, uh, it lifts the veil a little bit when you try these distances that they're really, I mean, Robin Hood really doesn't exist, you know. He's got Friar Tuck there whispering his wind calls <laughs> in his ear, <laughs> whatever, you know. But that's that's what it's about. And the guys that were used to communicating with each other and uh, the guys that had kind of like a, uh, okay, I know his barrel is warming up. He's on the 10th shot. You know, I'm going to fudge just a little bit for the next call because he hit high oh, on the shoot, plate yeah. and stuff. It all makes a big difference. Because at long ranges, this this was another thing that I was looking into, was you talk about tiny, tiny things making a huge difference. But let's say now at a competition, maybe perhaps they give you the exact yardage of a target that it's going to be from the firing from the firing line or, or where you're shooting. But if you're out there shooting and you're ranging a target, if you range 20, 20 meters incorrectly, and, and I'm reading this from an article I got from gunsandammo.com, 20 meters incorrectly at 2,000 yards is 70 inches error. Yeah. Yep. Like you, yeah, you're missing. You're yeah. off the 24-inch target. Yeah. yeah. So that's the one thing that they standardize and everyone, no one has an advantage in terms of determining distance. These targets are qualified with, I think, three different independent uh, devices, survey devices. Yeah. So you know down to the yard what, what the distance is. Now it's how well do you leverage that input data and which ballistic solver are you using and, hmm. um, you know, all those kind of things that come into play. But, you know, the thing that I realized was, you know, I try to read wind at 1,000 yards and, and – um, you know, I think I can hold my own doing that, and I thought I would be able to do that at these distances, but it does not translate at all. Like, really? Oh, absolutely. Like, I was I was seeing the same mirage that I would typically try to use, but then there's, like, this giant valley, you know, yep. from, you know, 1,300 yards to 2,300 yards, and you can't <laughs> see what's happening out there at all. And so what I realized was, you know, this whole one shot, one hit, kind of mentality it's in reality it's uh, it'd be cool if but you want to see how close you can come on that first shot but seeing the impact seeing where round number one goes yep. getting that empirical data and then knowing what to do with it afterwards was a lot more important than i had anticipated going into the event so even though this is 300 grains it's still a 38 caliber bullet and it didn't make near the splash whether it hit a rock oh, yeah. to the side of the target or whether it you know, hit the ground and tried to kick up some dirt in front of the target as the 416s, the 50s, the even the 375s, you know, you've got a 425 grains. It just makes a bigger, you can see trace better. It makes a bigger impact. So I, I realized and got an appreciation for it's not just the ballistic superiority. It's also having that much kinetic energy on target helps. Hmm. That's a good point, yeah. So you're reading, at those extreme long ranges, you're reading the actual bullet impact, whether, I guess, whether you hit or miss, or maybe more so than, I guess, you know, like you said, you're talking about mirage yeah. or, or things, so, that, things, th- things that you can't see. You're, I guess you're, you're reading things that you can only see after that shot 
has broke. Well, the if if you were to give them weight, you know, like which um, which factors would you pay attention more to? Um, you're still reading wind. I mean, I don't right. want to give the impression that you can just abandon all hope of reading wind. You get as close as you can reading the wind, and, and you know the predominant um, direction mm. and value. But then after that, it's the fine tuning. Right. And now you have to like try and catch that trace as it's coming down from high heaven, you know, <laughs> with these trajectories. You're wow. trying to catch the end of that trace. You're trying to see, okay, I saw dirt kick up in front of the target, but these targets are suspended. Did I actually shoot over the target? And I'm seeing uh, the, yeah, oh, that's oh dirt kick up that's, behind. That's where I found at any time I've shot long range, I, I feel terrible for whoever I'm shooting with because I'm I'm not a good spotter yet. Like right. That is such a hard skill to pick up. And, and a lot of people, they spend time behind the trigger a lot, but if you don't spend a lot of time behind a spotting scope, spotting for somebody, yeah. Or the other classic one, too, is in a match, if somebody is, you know, maybe a more dynamic match, like a, like a Vortex Extreme, which we've brought up, you know, tons of times here. Uh, if the target is off to the right, and somebody shoots, and they're off to the left of the target, and you see a splash to the right of the target, you're like, oh, you were right. Yep. But actually, they were left. They shot behind the target, and the bullet splashed on the right of Happens the target. Happens so yeah. often. That's yeah. a good one. So often. It's so tough. The one other thing I've seen, too, and you guys have way more experience than this, but I've seen by the time the wind's blowing such that the dust kicks up, but by the time you see the dust kick up, Oh. It, it it actually actually moved. It, you know it, what I mean? It's off to the side. It's off yep. to the side, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. so that took a little bit. And and maybe that's like a obvious, you know, uh, maybe that's freshman stuff there. You know, no, but. it still catches uh, everyone. I think exactly. Yeah. We had a really good example that year. You were down there. Uh, my partner Ed was shooting, and he was on the third target. Okay. And that target was on an edge where you had rock here. You had sand and rock down below, but it was just a bush and free air above and to the right of the target. Hmm. And when the shot went off, I seen this little puff of dust kind of like high left right above the target. And so, of course, Ed dropped down low right on the target, and then we had nothing. And I'm like, oh, man, we only got one shot left. So I, I told him, I said, I swear it's in that bush. Well, he pulled the same shot, so we never knew. But two years ago, they filmed that whole show. So we took that segment, which was the very first one, which I think is 1801 on YouTube, The King of Tomorrow, and I went frame for frame, and by God, we found those two hits. Did we, you? You watch it, and it was right in that bush. Just poof, the old branches were moving. It was just a peace of oh, mind. Oh, jeez, yeah. So last year, we um, Ed's brother came along, and he was on our team, and he was shooting my actually my old 375, the, the VM2, but we had knocked it down to a, a regular Shytech. And he hit the cold bore. He went five for five on the that first target, and he's moving up to the next target. We're on. We're sitting there looking, and and uh, he shoots and nothing. And Ed says, uh, "Bob, did you did you aim at the wrong target?" And he knew right away because he's seen on that one rock face that there was a low hit. So uh, now he's scrambling. You know, now the nerves are getting up a little bit, which is normal. And he takes a shot off, and there was nothing. So I said, "Bob, low left, dig low left." Well, he. He um, he thought he fudged, so he pulled the same shot again. Well, the thing was, is the first one was an error, so if we would have dug low left, you either would have got a rock or steel, but at least you would have known. And this all comes back down to, like, what we were starting a little while earlier. What makes or breaks a really good team is communications. Mm. And I think one of the advantages, because when you look at Wisconsin, we're, there isn't a lot of room to really shoot here for this type of stuff. 
Yeah. And to average pretty well going against folks that are out in the desert and they can shoot every week of the day if they wanted to, you really got to utilize your resources and make the best of it. And I really, truly believe that a lot of our luck or our resources is the fact that when we're shooting our 260s and 65s, uh, and we shoot a lot of steel in the state, that it's the communications. You got the spotters, you got the shooter. When I tell Ed that he's a target, he needs to go target right, he automatically does it, doesn't think about it, he just pulls the trigger. And then I see the results on that. And it's very important that the shooter does exactly what the spotter calls. Yeah. And it's better to have the spotter call the correction than the actual impact. Mm -hmm. This was actually one of the things that we were taught when we were out in Ohio that time because this guy's busy enough right here getting everything done, getting the crosshairs on it. He doesn't need to think where he's supposed to do it. That's the spotter's job. Yeah. And if the spotter tells you to aim upper right corner and you do it and the impact is there or close within the spotter, the spotter knows exactly what he needs to do on the next shot because he gave the instructions. He knows where it was supposed to hit. Now, if, if the shooter decides to do something different than what the spotter called, and he, he, he has an impact off on, say, the upper left, well, now he's the only one that knows what happened. And hopefully he's seen that next impact because if the spotter sees an impact over here now because the shooter decided that, nah, he ain't right, I'm going to do my own thing, well, you just lost your communications because oh, he's, see, he's yeah. worthless now because he has no clue because he's going to start to give instructions off of an impact that was actually aimed at a different point than what he thought. Yeah, it's like it's like dope. I'm giving instructions off of yep. bad dope, essentially. So that's, yeah, that's pretty yeah, that's, that's interesting. That and is you, interesting for sure. And you will find that if you watch any of these ELR events or even something local, the guys are shooting where they got their little team, communications is what's going to make or break a good team. If you're fluid, and which we're really lucky because we got this communication that we're doing all the time, I trust him behind me. He tells me to aim here. I'm going to aim there. Mm -hmm. And there's no bickering or nothing, but it's, it's, it's a system. It's a complete system. So, yeah. And when you watch these guys shoot, then all of a sudden there's a little bickering going on or a little tension going on. It's like a house of cards. Yep. <laughs> Boom! They're gonna they're gonna collapse. Huh. I mean, they'll still do. I mean, they'll still do pretty decent. But a lot of times, you can see that pressure really crushes them. It kind of so, goes back right. to what you were saying, Jimmy, about um, you know this maverick uh, character in Hollywood uh, that has all the answers and can do everything. Uh, you know, yeah. army of one. So we've we've tested this. You know, does a two man team actually score better than someone by themselves? And every single time, if it's done right, they do score better because you only have one, maybe two jobs to think about, and you specialize in that. You've got one or two jobs to think about, and you are the best to see that impact because you didn't just shoot a rifle. You know, your spotting scope is steady. The thing I like about this ELR, this two man kind of team, sometimes three man mm -hmm. team, is. Um, it mimics reality in terms of like a hunting scenario or, um, sure. you know, we've got some professional marksmen out there that operate in the same kind of team capacity. And, you know, if we can kind of push the, the, the limits in terms of equipment and technique and exterior ballistics knowledge, it can directly affect in a very positive way that military law enforcement interagency or, you know, those guys in uniform. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that is that that is a 
it, it's a it's a thing that often gets overlooked. Everybody wants to be doing the, the trigger pulling. You know, everybody wants to just be like, you know, oh yeah, just you know, I can just shoot out to whatever distance. But that's the quarterback. Without, that's the guy that gets the yeah, glory. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. Or you know, like I I think too to like uh, what occurred in my head was world rally driving. You know, some of the old like classic. And even to this day, modern rally driving, everybody has a co-driver. You know, so everybody looks at the the pro driver as like this person that's just incredible can navigate through a thin forest, you know, road at 100 miles an hour while drifting this, you know, 500 horsepower machine or whatever it is, you know. But it's like the co-driver is the one giving them all the information. So sure. They just have to execute on it. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. You need a good caddy. That's true. You need a good caddy. That yeah. is very true. Yeah. That's very true. And one thing that uh, I know you're exposed to a lot with the F-Class is to stay consistent with the winds. You get the guys, you shoot, and say you do have to make a correction or you had an impact, but now you're kind of frogging around, taking your time. You get out of that wind. I mean, and a lot of times, even like down there, the last two years, I had a pretty good time bonus built up on time that I didn't use. And that is all. You're, you got a rhythm going on, and, and the, the faster you can get those rounds down in a consistent, accurate way, instead of, you know, getting a little mm-hmm. jittery, the more you're going to be in that zone as far as that wind that's going on. Before it shifts again. Because mm-hmm. you'll see guys that they'll shoot, and they get a correction, and then they'll, maybe they'll dial or kind of get all settled in, and it's like, wow, the wind changed. Mm-hmm. You're, well, you know, like, you're going to shoot? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, boom, and well, then it's a different call already, you know? Yeah. Or maybe early in the sport when there wasn't, like, the rifle weight limits, you had guys bringing kind of comically large rigs up to the line, like, 100 pound type trunnion based you know rifles <laughs> and uh it took them so long to transition between targets that the condition was so different and they right. never hit anything and yeah yeah it, it, that wet giant precision machine wound up working against them oh very much so yeah, yeah. speaking of wind now one thing uh, a listener actually shot us an instagram message and asked us you know to speak more regarding wind how and more specifically like how you are uh, determining, I would say, like value of wind. You know, I I can look down range and I can see a tree or I can see mirage. Maybe sometimes, if, you know, I'm not that good yet, but I can at least sometimes see it. But you know, blowing to the left or blowing to the right. So it's like, you know, okay, well, it's blowing to the left or yeah. right. I know that. How does one assign like a approximate value to what they see down range? You know, and anything that you could even remotely put into a ballistic solver or whatever, how do you do that? A lot of that will go into the program. And if you're shooting on a day where there's uh, a fair amount of wind, you know, it's really working against you, what we try to do is at the target, if you see like a, a branch or something that's pushing from the, from the wind, that's actually when you want to shoot. Because when, you get, when it lets up, you're always going to be in that window where it might be letting up or taking off again. Mm-hmm. But if you have the opportunity and you see that thing leaning or that branch leaning or a weed or whatever that's pushing hard, if you shoot then all the time, then you got actually a consistent reading down there where most of your impact should be the same versus waiting for, up, you know, for a let off or all of a sudden, bam, it rams in again. Two years ago, one thing that was really neat is uh, we were sitting there studying that mount side pretty hot and heavy and just kind of memorizing, plotting the positions and watching the mirage. But at that distance, we actually were able to see a, a gust. That was the neatest thing ever. You watch the ribbons roll, and all of a sudden you just see that push, kind of like that same distortion you see with the bullet trays. Mm. And that was a really key element because if all of a sudden if you see that little boil going through there, 
well, you know, there's a gust right close to that that uh, oh, target wow. range or the mountain site. So, so would you, Jeff? You're saying the gust is you saw some local mirage at a specific point away from you. Yep, and it was actually you could just see it was like a, you know it was just the whole the, the boil was disturbed the mirage. Yeah, because normally it's a constant ribbon, but all of a sudden it would just. Sh- shatter out you could tell it there was a gust coming through down there. that's pretty cool how long yeah. did that last did you watch it well most of the time it's going to come through just like a locomotive you know it's just going to yeah. come through and then everything settles especially uh, out west between ridges yep and and when we're you know you mentioned wind in that um, a lot of folks struggle trying to understand how wind reacts and out there, or you take any piece of the lay of land like you got around here in central Wisconsin, if you're standing there and you look at the valleys and the hillsides, I always tell folks to try to picture how water's flowing. Because mm-hmm. wind is the same as water. You'll sit there and you'll yep. see the little eddies, you'll see all this. But um, when you're trying to just get a grip on what's happening for wind out there, just picture that lay of land. You know the direction is coming, but just picture how water would flow through there. Hmm. And okay. If you if a person wants to get a and I've used this deer hunting actually, but if you take a piece of milkweed and drop that, and I mean you obviously you're seeing it on a much closer scale, but I mean you'll see that and it'll hit you know maybe it'll come where a tree is and it'll go around that tree just yeah. like water yeah. water would. It's it's an interesting I guess it'd be a representation of what you're talking about on a much you know closer yeah. scale or or like you'll see that piece of milkweed go towards like a cut in the ground and we're talking about like a you know a foot wide like rivet or a rut and it'll speed up because yeah. all of a sudden the the wind is like Bernoulli principle, right? It's it's going faster because it's being constricted. Oh, it's getting, yeah, constricted. Yeah. So to answer well, your question about value, so what yeah, I do, like, can you tell if it's five mile an hour wind or ten mile an hour wind or? Yeah, yeah. So it, it, for me, it starts with uh, a building block. I, I do like a bottom up estimate, and my building block is a one mile per hour. I commit to memory for a specific cartridge. What does a one mile per hour full value look like? What's a full, when you say I'm full sorry. value? I'm sorry. Okay, so that? like uh, that would be a wind coming from 9 o'clock or 3 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, so oh, like okay. straight on straight 90 across. degrees. Perpendicular. Yeah, perpendicular. Yep. So I'll commit that number to memory, you know. Uh, it's going to be uh, this many uh, MRAD or MOA of deflection at a specific distance. And then my second job is to estimate the velocity. So that's probably the hardest. That's the, that's the thing that takes the longest to master. But I've sort of uh, got this memory bank full of, um, you know, like uh, fiducial cues. I'll look at grass. I'll look at tree branches. I'll look at mirage. And then I'll categorize all those things and I'll say, okay, I know it's above five miles an hour because instead of the leaves moving on the trees, now I've got branches moving on the trees. Okay. Or uh, I know it's above 10 miles per hour because when I look at the mirage, uh, it's almost like streamers that are going at very, very tight ripples mm-hmm. instead of like uh, very lazy high amplitude waveforms. It's, it's, okay. Now it's tightened up like, like a guitar string, uh, strung taut. Now I know it's above, you know, 14 miles an hour because the mirage is gone. Where did it go? I know it's still blowing. I can feel it blowing, but I can't see mirage anymore. It's because it's blowing above 14 miles an hour or something like that. So I've got all those cues kind of built up and say, okay, I know what one mile per hour will do to this rifle. I know right now my best estimate is a seven mile per hour wind. It's simple arithmetic, but now you have to do value. 
So value is, is it a true full value, 3 o'clock, 9 o'clock, or is it coming from, you know, 2 o'clock? Oh. So that's your weight yeah. factor. So you've got a specific multiplier. It could be, you know, 30%. It could be 70%. It could be 100% mm. that you multiply that final number by, and that's my win hold. Wow. And I think a lot of people, they take a little bit more, less analytical and more experiential take on it where they say, well, I shoot a 260 all the time. I just know that that's a two mil hold for wind right. with a 260 because yeah. it looks like a two mil hold. It's I had to hold two mils when I saw the wind look like that the other day. And so they're skipping all that arithmetic in between right, and they're right. just saying, okay, that's a two mil hold. Now, and like you said, what you're talking about too, you have to consider each one of those at at each varying distance, right? Because what you see happen to a bullet at 200 yards with a five mile an hour wind isn't going to be the same thing that happens to a bullet at a thousand yards or 1500 yards, 2000 yards with a five mile an hour wind, right? Yeah, it's, it's fairly specific. And also you change platforms and now you've got to reprogram that your brain for that building block. You okay. Know, it's a different because rifle. all of a sudden now you have different bullet, different weight, different spin. Different yeah. But if you get good at that methodology, I think it lends itself to transitioning between rifles a lot better than that experiential one where you just plug in new variables, right? right? Okay. Got a new building block. But Which the, a lot the of ballistic solvers will kind of do for you. Yeah. But, you know, do you do you guys find that there is a ballistic solver that you use that basically, if I just plug everything into it, it's right? Or do you still find that okay, the ballistic solver is one of my many tools, but I still have to do math myself? That there's still some things that I'm having to do. Like, That's a good question. Still isn't doing every single thing. I. I trust programs. Yeah. There's a lot of good programs out there. And this is one thing when you got guys that are spending money on rifles and they want to really get involved in this, I always tell them that even if you had to pay 100 bucks for a program, because there are so many programs you can use in your smartphones now, it's well worth it when you look at what you got invested in a rifle, yeah. all the ammo, you're going here, yeah, you want to shoot well. Why do you want to find a free app to try to get by? You know, there's there's a lot of good ones. Yeah. Applied Ballistics has a decent one. What do you have on this? this P, uh, that's, a, that's a black like box, a, Jim. It's a black yeah, box. It's, it's a large. Black it looks box. like the thing that my UPS guy scans my packages um, with. I use that one for mainly the the real long distance stuff, the the big rifle. And it's a yeah. the program is Cold Bore from Patagonia. And... I mean, there's a lot of programs that are getting better and better, and Applied Ballistics is there and and a few others, but a lot of old-school, long-distance, real ELR stuff is either Cold Bore or Field Firing Solutions. Those two names you see pop up a lot. But there's a lot of good programs out there, but probably the key on it is inputs. Okay. I mean, and once you get everything in there, you need to just go through and check everything because a decibel point, a number... Good info in gives you good info out, and that's really important. They're they're good though. They're scary accurate. I, I could not believe how close they were at yep. such long distances. Yeah, if you're diligent about you know, I mean th they've got functionality in there for temperature biasing. So as ambient temperature changes throughout your designated shooting time, yep. or maybe you know you draw a late time in the afternoon. You can actually you know know how that's going to affect yep. um, your results. Yeah. Um, there's uh, truing functionality that's that's come a long way. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
the people that program these these uh, solvers these days, I mean, they've thought about it much more than exactly than I have. <clears throat> and wow. I, there was a, a kid downstairs earlier, um, good friend of mine that I got to meet through shooting. But uh, we were small talking a little bit, and he was talking about his rifle. And I told him that uh, one thing they, that a lot of folks don't understand is they buy some ammo or they buy a bullet off the shelf, and it's got a BC of, say, a G7, of like this one here is uh, 595 for a G7, 1.2 for a G1. What's advertised, and everybody always says that, well, everybody's just kind of inflating the numbers for sales purpose. Maybe a little bit of that. But every barrel is different. And what it is is when you take this bullet that's rated for, say, .595, and you shoot it in your rifle, your grooves and lands are going to distort that bullet. Hmm. Now, every barrel is probably going to distort that bullet a little bit different because of the machining that was done on it. So between that distortion on the bullet and the speed that you're getting versus the manufacturer, that's actually what tweaks everything. A lot of folks will make the mistake and they'll fudge their speed number in their programs to try to make impacts make sense. And really, we if you're shooting off of a lab radar or a magneto speed or whatever system that you're using, when those numbers are right there and they're consistent, you use those. Yeah. The number that you're going to play with is you're going to just sit there and tweak and fudge your BC number because it was distorted or maybe... You're only running 3150, and the manufacturer is running 3250 or 3300. And that's what really changes and brings the programs and tunes them up a lot is just playing with your BC because every barrel's different. It's going to change that bullet. Huh. Why does it matter which number you fudge at, at the end of the day? If you were to use the manufacturer's BC number, but you fudge the speed, mm-hmm. And the only way that you could, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk a lot with like the 260s, 65s, 308s, 300s, and you're able to play with your speed number, and all of a sudden what you dial it, the program tells you, and you're impacting at 500 yards, and you're on. Well, then once you get out six or seven, well, it's not going to make sense. It was distance specific if you, if you yeah. fudge that number. Because it's just okay. going to keep accelerating. The velocity. The speed. No. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, it's tempting to do because it's an easy number to, right. that everyone understands. It makes more sense. It's easier to, to play with the speed than the yeah. tweak the BC. But. And I'll take that a step further in that, I mean, we have to remind ourselves it's worth mentioning G1 versus G7. What are we talking about when we say that? It's a yeah. standard, right? It's a right. physical shape that, that we've said, okay, this is the G1 standard. This is the G7 standard. And they become a little bit more fidelic and, and closer to reality and closer models of the bullets that we're actually shooting. But they're still models. They're still estimates, right? right? It's a one-size-fits-most. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. So the thing that's better than using BC is using a custom drag model. Yep. And that's kind of where the next frontier is in terms of predicting, deterministically predicting these trajectories, especially when they're in the transonic region. So, whoa, we just went from talking about Maybe the velocity in BC on the back of the box might not be dead on with your rifle. To fudging BCs to now literally making a, a custom drag profile. So like, yeah, some of the well, programs years ago allowed you to have a step to BC, which was kind of neat because you could have a certain rating to match this speed range, and then as the bullet's slowing down, you're going to drop your BC number down because it's going slower. So it's definitely not running that high range and you could step it like on the average it was three different steps okay I remember yeah, when like BC. sierra bullets yeah. do you remember when they would say well if your velocity is between this region mm-hmm. then your bc is such hmm. 
So mm. the programs allowed you to put those three stages in there. So as you're getting farther out, it knew you were running slower. It would actually sit there and change your corrections. And then that kind of transitioned into the custom profiles, which wow. is kind of common out And it's, so it's basically a fancy way of saying we're taking more data points than just three right. steps. Exactly. Yeah. And they're empirically derived. We went out there and we measured. And now we're applying that measurement to all future shots. So how do you create this custom drag profile? Like, what are you measuring? How are you measuring? Yeah. Unfortunately, it's experimental, meaning, okay. like, you have to actually take downrange measurements. That's why it's so expensive and laborious to create custom drag models. They're valuable once you have them and you have that data, but uh, it's hard for guys like us to go out and do it. We have to rely on exterior ballistics uh, experts uh, in the field that that measure popular bullets and share that information, uh, sometimes sell that information to users. What, what are the, hmm. How are they measuring things downrange? What are they? So they're actually uh, correlating downrange velocity with bullet drop at distance. So if you know those things, you can model uh, literally in three-dimensional space what's happening to that bullet, what it's experiencing, mm-hmm. how well is it retarding the effects of drag. Do they have, like, really good cameras or... <laughs> I don't know. Let's see, like that's where my Doppler that's... Doppler radar. Okay. They're taking okay. downrange measurements uh, with radar. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. And then there are they factoring things in, like, like what if there's a a headwind that day that the bull is fighting? Is that going to play into? I think it is, Mark. Yeah. I mean, they have to they have to wait for a pretty unadulterated set of circumstances before okay. they capture that data because yeah, you don't want it to be all messed up from outside influences. But holy smokes. And, and it wouldn't really pay off for the closer range, you know, the 1,000-yard and in stuff, but for this this kind of uh, enterprise, yeah, it pays well, off. Well, yeah, because so, such little tiny changes can make, can make huge differences. I mean, variance of, you mentioned it, like degrees, you know, that these calculators or models have to take into account the, the temperature. Oh, yeah. And shoot, humidity, DA, yeah, whatever the heck DA is, I think we, I think Paul tried explaining that once. On Density, Density, altitude. Yeah, <laughs> it's your friend. It is okay. All right. Yeah, so, I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Jeff's rifle? We should talk about Jeff's rifle. It's the uh, it's the big one on the bigger one on the table. You um, said elephant in the room earlier. That one's got a pretty big <laughs> trunk. Yeah, I'm feeling it's a little the, bit insecure to be honest right now. I don't blame it. Out. It's the only time I've ever seen a, a rifle make the Gen two four and a half to twenty seven. I think that is looks small, petite, with the sun shield on yet. Yeah, it it looks like a thirty eighteen or like it just looks small on that rifle. <laughs> so we put this rifle together last year, and I actually had it chambered for the three seventy five Werner, and the Werner case actually is a 50 cal that's been shortened up and necked down to a 375 and i was easily big old case yeah i was easily pushing a 400 grain a bullet at uh, i could go past 3400 if i wanted to and if you wanted to but you don't want to well i just didn't want to age the brass so we were running really well here in wisconsin at 3361 with it and then I knew we were going to get into some heat down there, and I just wanted to build a little cushion, so I found a really decent load that was at 33.16. I was averaging about an inch at 800 yards for vertical on a nice day. And um, it shot well, but that was a lot of powder and a lot of gas going down a small hole. <laughs> and, you know, if you were just messing around at a local shoot or having fun at the range, 
it'd be a phenomenal, just a phenomenal laser. But when you're forced to shoot 15 rounds in nine minutes or less, well, it starts to build heat and it's hard on the throat. So what we did this year is we actually necked all the brass up to a 416, put a different barrel on, rechambered it to the 416, and um, we're hoping to get a good barrel life out of it. I think we are. Because yeah. so, I've checked it so far since I've been shooting it, and it hasn't moved. The throat's still right where it was supposed to be. To so. people listening out there who say, well, why would you get better barrel life uh, just by increasing the hole through the middle of the barrel? What would you say to those? You're, you're allowing, I mean, with uh, 190-some grains of powder going through a .375 hole, that's just a lot of heat and sandblasting going on right at the very beginning. That's where your throat is. Okay. And now that we open it up, it's going to allow those gases to get through without doing as much damage. And okay, sure, yeah. And it's it's I always say it's kind of like taking a cutting torch on steel. You know, you can swipe by and it doesn't do anything. You hold it, it starts to get orange. You hold it too long, it starts melting. So you take all that, and then you take the sandblasting effect, the powder beside that, so... Mm-hmm. I've got cartridge envy right now. Yeah, okay. this 338 Lapua now actually looks Doesn't tiny. It? There is a size so discrepancy. Can you explain what the shoulder and the is. neck on this? That's their kind cartridge of. is round. Yeah, it's not. It's not like a, a like angular shoulder like you see on well, shoot almost everything else I've ever looked at. Why is it round? You know, that's a good question. That's just something <laughs> that just, Werner wanted to work with. They yeah. they're messing around with the. Uh, 14 millimeter that had that same style shoulder that makes that thing look small. I get, wow, okay. So and, uh, that, that, w- isn't that hard to shape? Is that harder to shape than this nice oh, they, angular? They, they size like a dream, honestly. They do. Really? And it's I, a feature and, borrowed from the Weatherby Magnums, right? Exactly. And, you know, honestly, really? part of what uh, I want to kind of express here is if you were sizing brass, and I don't know if you ever noticed this, but when you're pushing down your shoulder, bumping it back a thousand, or you're actually using your bushing and squeezing that neck, you can get flexing going on right here. Right at that because angle? Because you're, you're almost so flat that I've seen it with the 375 VM2 where it'll actually flex right there. And I think you gain a lot of support in that shoulder. Being round. Oh, Maybe I it's t- just a stronger shape. I really from think the it is. So. You think of like, you know, and I'm no it's like an arched bridge builder or, or structural engineer, but you think of like an arch. Yeah, you know, it's a very strong. Sure, I have, it is. I have no idea if there's a parallel there, it but is. that's what popped into my head. Because another thing we look at, and that's all part of that flexing, is consistency, uh, consistency in sizing, because you only want to bump the shoulder back a thousandths, and also consistency in seating the bullets. Is when we're talking that distance, a foot or two per second difference variance between bullets is huge. I mean, the, yeah. verti- the vertical you're going to get downrange. I mean, you change, you take any of your programs, and uh, anybody could do this, and you can just kind of make a little dummy round in there, and you, uh, you sit there and you set everything up, say, for 3,000 feet per second at 2,000 yards, and it says how many inches of drop you got, and then you sit there and you change it just by a couple feet per second. It's amazing how many inches that you mm, start to yeah. walk. And, I mean, that'll get you off the target really easy, so... Yeah, I was looking at the same article I've referenced a couple times. Now they had these kind of nifty charts where they showed difference of 40 feet per second in this case, which would be essentially kind of like if you had, you know, if you reloaded and you had this, you know, like an extreme spread, like an outlier or something like that. But, you know, difference of that is 83 inches at 2,000 meters. 
We try to get right down around two to three feet per second um, extreme spread on all of our rounds. So, so your extreme spread would be two to three feet. It, yeah. And that sounds kind Holy of smokes. unbelievable yeah. when you hear it for the first time. But the bigger cases, for some reason, it's like if you take a real tiny case, like a 22 Hornet mm-hmm. or something, uh, it takes a very small difference in powder to represent a big, on a percentage basis, difference in charge weight. Right. Right? Oh. Like one granule for whatever powder you're throwing for that little case makes a big difference. One granule that you're throwing for these giant cases on a percentage basis makes a very small difference. So believe it or not, it's actually easier to get more consistent velocities with the bigger case. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Percentages. Yep. So this gun has an incredibly huge bolt. That's one thing that we. It's like the same size as my barrel. Yeah, but it it, actually it is. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I can only imagine that's just to deal with the immense amount of pressure. I, I I mean, I'm no gunsmith, or I don't understand these immensely well, but. Well, that's a Bernard action on there, so I could use it in a 50 cal, the 416. Mm-hmm. Uh, this round here, or the round that I had last year with the 375 caliber on it. So this one comes from New Zealand. Yep, and, and I uh, mean it is it it is smooth. I really feels like really... a bank vault when you close it. Yep. Wow, man, I can just see how smooth that is. Yeah, yeah. makes a zip sound. Now, <laughs> another thing that you guys have discussed is the amount of travel that you have. So then, now looking on the action right above that big bolt is your mount now ian on your rifle your your mount is essentially fixed yeah it's a fixed mount um and mark can you tell like the angle that's going on there oh it's visibly you can see how much oh no you can tell it's gotta be 50 yeah you can see that it is canted but how much is that so this is 60 so one degree 60 60 60 moa base now some people out there are like man 20 moa base is that too much that's 60 moa yeah yeah now that yeah, that's that's big time. This one on uh, Jeff's rifle is actually adjustable. Yeah, like on our two earlier 375s we had, we were running the ADM rails, and mm-hmm. I wanted to have something that I knew I could really start to stretch out if the round actually would allow it to where you could get into the three to four to maybe five. I mean, guys are out to 6,000 yards now messing around. Jeez. And... It actually allows it. And what I like about it, because that was one thing we stressed on the 375, is we didn't want any moving parts. The only part we wanted to move was this, which is supposed to move the turret. Turrets, yeah. Because um, I've seen it where different brands, and I ain't going to bring up names, kind of struggled. Things would get loose on them. I've seen guys uh, have a tough time in the finale because of loose parts. So Werner Tool actually built this for me. And it's got a cross pin that's machined. There is no way you can get any friction, period, up and down. And then you got two locks on each side. And, you know, right now we're looking at we're on 30, there's 60, there's 90, and then there's 120 MOA setting. But with that, I got a 20 MOA rail on top of it. So right now, theoretically, I'm looking at a 50 MOA rail. Oh, 30 plus 20. So you could have up to 140? Yep. So is it fair to say, though, that this would be like uh, pick your poison in terms of slant uh, from the beginning, but you're not really going to be changing that during the middle of a match on the fly? You might. Really? And all I had to do was in my program, I got it set up. So, okay, I'm in the 50 position. And I know what uh, I already measured from the center of the board to scope height. Mm -hmm. So I got that in there. So I got it in there for like the... To make it simple, a 30, 60, and a 90. I'm not going to worry about the 20, but it's just a way of a reference. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then when you're at your 100-yard zero or your 100-yard range, well, you shoot your zero for the 30, you shoot the zero for the 60, and you shoot the zero for the 90, and then you just put in how many inches offset. So, like, right now, if I would go into the program, it's going to say that I got an 8.8 offset for my 100-yard zero. And then if I was into the 60, of course, it's going to be a little bit more. Not a lot, but a little bit more. So if I did get in a situation where I got all the way through and all of a sudden, dang it, now i got a target that I'm right on the verge of running out of a holdover after I dialed everything, well, in a matter of a couple seconds, I can pop them loose, move it to the 90, pull that up, and it'll tell me exactly where to hold. That's so. pretty cool. So do you experience any unintentional lateral shift when you go from – 40 to or 30 to 60 to right 90. yeah it is machine that tight that wow it, holy smokes and wild. that was the one thing i wanted because i was either going to run a steep rail or i wanted something that is so rigid and tight that it's because it, i know it that's works. been kind of the the complaint with a lot of the competitors maybe to that mount right. is that it's They're sloppy well they, yeah they, they get sloppy in time so yeah wow. so is this part you know i mean it's almost like a sleeve over the top and at least it appears to this is canted and then this is canted as well then this whole bar is mounted and it pivots off of here and then there's machined holes going across where i can set my side pin yeah the actual this this portion right here the actual rail on top on top is the part that actually has a 20 moa cant to it just like a normal base would right then i was trying to figure out how oh so so the holes in there step the holes are what step up exactly because i can't okay because i can't put this in right now until i get the holes lined up after you loosen up yeah this slider essentially pushes forward and causes it to can't gotcha yeah and if i had these loose you would not even be able to feel any or sense any type of hiccup in her she's that tight really now, both of you guys have bubble levels on your rifle scopes, and we've, I think, touched on bubble levels for long-range shooting in the past. But it's huge. It's pretty huge to ensure that your rifle is level before you take a shot. Yeah. How, how does that, like, what, what, what plays into that if it's not level? Do you check that before every single shot? Is that part of your routine? or? Usually once I pretty much get settled up i'll glance at my bubble make sure it's pretty much straight up and down and then i just go to business and if i'm cycling around i'm getting a target i just it's nice that you can have it set up so you don't have to do a lot of head movement Mm -hmm. i've seen i shot a rifle a couple years ago where it was actually right down in here oh behind the like right above the bolt and and people would think it's easy to see there but it's not yeah because you actually got to get out of your cheek well just to dip down to see it so so you've and, got it right on the scopes, too. Yep, because you can, I mean, once you start running a bubble left to right, you're just canting and steering the stuff off to the left to the right. Yeah. And there again, they're just going to make things a little bit tougher for your spotter because he's thinking things are squared up. So Yeah, well, a common mistake is, uh, you know, these bipods, you can adjust them for cant, and that's how you chew this up before you before you start shooting. But if you don't have the cant lock tightened down enough... She'll start to torque off of the... Well, think oh, about, yeah. you know, some of these projectiles are 750 grains, mm-hmm. uh, 400 to 700 grains, and that represents a lot of torque. Twist and torque, yeah. Yeah, so this has to be pretty tight. Otherwise, incrementally, you'll see you're inducing yeah. cant with each shot. Gosh, yeah, you brought that up in the last one, too, but it is incredible to think that as you shoot, the the bullet moving down the barrel is essentially, I mean, it's... Taking the rifle and twisting yeah, it. Yeah, it's taking the rifle and twisting it, which it would totally makes sense. But 
you mentioned the bipods. Now, you guys, Ian, you're actually using the same kind of bipod that you had when we were talking about F class on yours. Yeah, that's, I imagine they just it carries over well. Or it's it sure what you're does. Used yeah, to. you're shooting prone, and it's a nice stable uh, stance. And what would you say? Probably half the field for ELR uses an F class bipod, if not more. They do. Yeah. So yeah. I wanted to stay foldable just in case, and I just went with the foldable bipod because that's yep. what we've been using for a while. Yep. And, I mean, you can still sit there and, and extend the legs out and everything on it, and I sit there and adjust my cant off and my lock on the bottom. Okay. Uh, one thing that's kind of funny that uh, that I've seen, I mean, that's a really cool rest. I mean, a bipod up front, but I've seen guys that would take an arrow and poke it into little spokes down there. To, oh, they um, would use an arrow shaft on the yeah. captain's wheel down here? Yeah. It's a great idea when you're home. But, you know, I was watching guys, they were just, oh, my God, yeah. they were struggling trying to get that arrow to slide onto one of those little pins there. Was, sure enough, sure enough. Now i actually seen where they got a little thing back here now that you can turn it. They must put a little gearbox where they got a little extension. A little coaxial cable yeah. that they can, yeah. yeah. I yeah. wish this was a little closer because it would be nice to be able to adjust it without having to get out of it, but I just got to kind of lean along the side if I need to reset it. But yeah. Now, I'm staring face-to-face with Ian's muzzle brake here, and so we just had a podcast not long ago talking about why suppressed, and I was about to say, why do you guys hate your neighbors so much? Because both of you have some pretty <laughs> impressive muzzle brakes on these things. But those play those have got to play a pretty big role, and I can only imagine if you suppress these things, the recoil would be pretty tremendous. Am I right or no? Oh, I've never tried. I don't know. I mean, this is a pussycat to shoot, actually, with it's 25 pounds, and then you put a big five-port, uh, muzzle brake on it like that, it does not recoil very much at all. Yeah. I don't know. How's yours? I got a standard 338 Lapua that's suppressed, and, I mean, it, it gives you a little punch, but it ain't bad at all. Yeah. So. Yeah, a lot of people oftentimes think suppressors take away recoil, but on a big, big rifle like this, it can actually, all that gas is just staying in there, so it's it's all going to, how does that work? What, what, what's going on? Uh, I have it's, no I have no clue. I have, like, zero experience with suppressors. It's still catching in a chamber, so it's still, you know, you don't, you're not getting that blast where it's pushing you back. Yeah. It's just a little bit of a out the end of it. Yeah. Personally, the reason I wouldn't maybe want to try it for something like this is that I heard that the first round shot is a little bit different in terms of point of impact. Is okay, that true? Right. That's, maybe. Yeah. That cold bore shot is, I mean, some guns are right in there where it stays with the group and some will walk because just like doing load development where you see that a little bit. So they can, they should be able to tune that out, and every can's probably a little bit different too. Yeah. Got a lot of guys always ask, how much does this thing kick? And between the muzzle brake, which is very efficient, and the weight, because this thing, last year when it was a 375, I had a 35-inch barrel on it. It weighed in at 38 pounds, and I thought I was sitting pretty good for everything. But with the... 416 now the barrel went out to 39 inches and that tipped me to 42 pounds what's the limit for this year uh 45 this year 40 next year but okay i figure if i end up going back again next year i got a 375 action that i'm going to build another 375 because why if i get this thing shooting really well i can't see chopping a barrel just to make one event yeah, so the deal there is I think the first year, the inaugural uh, competition, they had maybe a 60-pound weight limit or something, and you know people built rifles that were 60 pounds, which is kind of neat uh, spectacle to see, but we all kind of 
want it to be as practical too as possible. So they're taking that weight limit and they're starting to roll it back. And okay. like I think in five pound increments maybe per year until you get to something that is a little bit more representative of, uh, you know, something that, that could be used practically. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the other events down in uh, Texas and Georgia and a few others, it's really neat that, you know, you go back to, I'm going to reference the King of Two Mile again, probably, f- I think this is the fifth year now, but back then when they started, there wasn't a lot of ELR in the country. Yeah. And the prestige of the event or whatever has just caused so many spinoffs. There's... There's guys putting up shoots all over the country, which is neat because more people can experience this. Anyways, I think the King of Two Mile is the only one that has a limit of 40 pounds for the pretty much the larger mm-hmm. rifles. So the other the other way that they can kind of influence uh, the competition to support, you know, the practical professional marksman is by placing a higher priority on first round hits. So Jeff was talking about the course of fire where you had, um, let's say, three shots per target. You get the, or you did up until last year, right. you got a uh, premium number of points if you hit the first time uh, versus the second or third. So it was the distance times three for points if you hit first round, the distance times two if you hit second round, and the distance yep. times one if you hit the last round. And, hmm. that, and that was huge, man. Those numbers built up fast, especially on the very first five-round target. Now this year... They've changed their format a little bit, so, and I ain't, I don't I don't have it memorized, but they actually did adjust that a little bit, so, so there isn't such so a big skewed. boost yeah. right out of the gate that it kind of makes the longer target have a little bit of prestige versus everybody just smacking the first target and being done, and they scored so high. So okay, oh, okay. gotcha. Yeah. Huh. One thing we actually worked on a little bit is the on the muzzle brakes is we. We wanted to have a brake that had good control, and we did some slow-motion videos of it. You could see the gases pretty much coming straight out. We didn't want the gases with all the dust and stuff coming back and distorting the spotters or the shooter. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's really good brakes out there, but, man, they are throwing stuff back in your face as well as the the concussion or whatever, the thump that you get. And with this break when we were doing the slow motion videos you could see all the gases pretty much coming straight out and it still had very very good recoil manage- management and i think everybody always asks what it compares to maybe a 20 gauge i mean it's not much really oh, okay and that's key because that keeps the shooter on target you're you know if your spotter is missing something hopefully you're still there but a lot of times in this game you should actually be ejecting your spent case throwing one in right here but don't close the bolt a lot of guys will do that, too, in the middle of a shoot where they're running multiple rounds on a certain target. Is they'll inject one in, they'll throw one back in the chamber, close the bolt, and then they're, like, waiting or getting on and then finally taking a shot Well, she's cooking. Oh, your bullet that's in the chamber well, is cooking. Well, the, the powder's ramping up pretty good because this is a hot spot. And oh, you'll okay. see a lot of guys that are pretty sharp as they'll, they'll get that spent one out, but they'll just throw it right here in the cool part of the yep. gun and as soon as they're on target or everything is cool then they just close the bolt and psh, let her rip so wow but yeah i mean i see a lot of guys i mean they've been just rapid eddie shooting and all of a sudden they got one in there and she's just cooking and cooking and cooking you know she's gonna go hot and like huh. you said i mean just these minor minor differences yeah are having a really really big effect on that bullet downrange or the velocity or i totally yeah i totally didn't even think of that so for some, you know, person listening out there who's thinking to themselves, all right, a thousand yards, 
done that, been there, done that. I've listened to Long Range 1001 through 1003 with uh, Vortex Nation podcast here, and now I've, I've done this, and I want to get want to get going out further. Like, what do you? What's the first step? Is the first step to get a really big fancy rifle like this that's chambered in something crazy like a Shy Tack or a BMG or whatever, or is the first step to stretch your current rifle out as far as you can get it? Find a partner who's going to spot for you every time you go. I mean, what what do you do? What do you do first? How does one? Yeah. Like we talked about before. Find a range probably that is even suitable. Of- <laughs> Find a range that's safe to do this in. Uh, you, you know, you, just because your buddy you know, a mile away ha- can put up a target on his hillside doesn't mean you get to invade the airspace of all your neighbors on the way there, you know? That bullet's if- got to go high <laughs> in the air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We uh, actually just experienced, or I should say my shooting partner did this last weekend, a pretty eerie situation. Uh, he was out in his yard and he heard a and a click in the branches, like, man, that sounded like a subsonic bullet tumbling. And uh, all of a sudden, he could hear some boom off in the background, you know. And, and uh, all of a sudden, he just kind of shrug it off, you know, shook it off, you know, it's just a one deal. All of a sudden, here comes another one. No way. Oh, my gosh. So he, he got in his car, and he's driving down because he knew the direction. And he got going, and he's going. He's got his window open. He can hear the shooting. And I'm, I'm not going to stretch this. Two miles away. And I mean, it has nothing to do with what we're talking king of two mile. <laughs> I was going to say, he, this, he, this guy he, wants to be the king of two mile. He, he's two he's driving along, and you know he's got his window open, and all of a sudden he sees all these cars parked right here and a couple targets out in an open field. How far away were the targets that they were shooting at? 150 and 100 Aye. on an open field, and it was just a paper target. Yeah, no backstop. And, and the weird part was is because uh, I – I really stress safety. I stress backstops because, you know, you've seen these guys up in the helicopter shooting tracers down, and you just see the spray going back up. Because a lot of folks always think that a bullet hits the ground, you know, it's it's pretty much history. But uh, here they were. They were on a hillside, and they were actually shooting down into a valley before it ramped back up. Holy smokes. And not a big, not a big bluff, but, you know, there was a nice little roller. And son of a gun. And they might have been shooting 300 wind mags or who knows what because he said he, he just pulled in and he says, uh, just telling you guys, uh, you might want to consider a better backstop. And they freaked out when they heard how far they went. But, uh, you know, you, you think about it, and they were actually kind of in a, a nice, safe angle. But those you bolts, would think. Yeah, yeah, the way you describe it. were still launching and going. They were doing like the old, uh, oh, man, I used to have a cell phone app game where you try and get the bird to go, whoosh, you know, yeah. down in the little valley <laughs> and shoot up on the other side. They were doing one of those with their bullets. Jiminy. I get a little grouchy with some of the guys because I grew up out in the country, and so many folks will put up targets out in an open field and shoot at them, and they pretty much figure that, you know, the bullet's going to just kind of die right there or whatever. And, you know, when I was a kid in the country, we used to explore. And there's so many folks that will set up targets, and they just got a woods behind them and think that's cool, you know. Well, it only takes one time. And kids don't know any better, and adults will trespass, but it only takes one time, and that's why backstops are really, really important. Yeah. yeah. But Be no, it. to answer yeah. your question. So find a safe spot. Find a, a safe backstop. spot. Yep, yep. Yeah. And then, I imagine uh, the places you go to shoot these kind of matches and these ELR, I mean, that must be like an incredible sight to see. you got to be looking like, you got to feel like you're on the moon when you look at it, <laughs> like two miles to, well, and of course, that's probably coming from the naive Wisconsinite over here where it's like, man, I can't believe that thing's 400 yards away. Well, and then but, you, you talk about a backstop, though, like a backstop, 
that might be sufficient at a hundred like yards. Like I mean, what kind of yeah. backstop do you need at two thousand yards? A mountain. We yeah. have mountains, yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Basically. That are big dirt berms where you got to kind of set up as a really good bullet catching area. That's yeah. pretty yeah. much what yeah. I got at home. Yeah. But uh, you know, don't if you're getting right into it, don't experiment with the whole Ford Observer thing yep. and, and all no, that. No, definitely I mean, not. But you don't need a rifle like this. That's the moral of the story, I guess. Is uh, you kind of like alluded to it, Jimmy? Is you've got your 300 Win Mag at home, or maybe a 7 Mag, or maybe not even a Magnum. You know, maybe it's your it's your 270. You can experience the exact same uh, trials and tribulations and experiment, ballistic experiment that the ELR has become with pretty much anything. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of guys ask, you know, what's a good long distance rifle for an in- introductory level? And actually, one of my favorites, I never owned it, but I think a 300 Norma would just, I don't know why, but because, you know, they're really, they can really perform well out to, say, 2,000 yards. They really can. And I think it's just a really cool place to start. And there's a lot of places that a guy can go with. And you even touched base a little bit earlier. What is ELR? And you're starting to just get into the 22s, and it just kind of made me smile a little bit because... Um, back home in the fall, there's always a lot of little local clubs that'll have a cold bore event. So you get there and you, you throw $10 in the kitty and you get a number. And when it's your turn, you go up and you shoot at either a 600-yard target or a 700-yard target in the open class. And then they shut the range down. There's a bunker down there. And they'll put a tape across your little bullet hole and put your shooting number there. And at the end of the day, they bring this in. And everybody wants to see who's the closest to the diamond on that orange spot and you you get a frozen turkey for a prize or something there you go (laughs) uh, and then they also have the hunting classes which are around 500 yards and i just kind of wanted to go and hang out and just visit with the guys that are shooting there because it's a lot of locals and i thought you know hunting class it's got to be a factory gun Mm. no fancy stuff on it and then normally they limit the power range at 12 or whatever and i thought i want to see if my kid will let me use his 22 so he's got a little Cooper 57M, and I put a 20MOE rail on it, and then I put that Diamondback Tactical on it. Okay. Oh, yeah. So I put the scope on the rifle, and I got home from work on a Thursday night. And normally the week before these events, they always let the locals come and, and practice and get dialed in for this fun shoot. So my neighbor and I, we ran up there before dark with the 22, and I got my little ballistics program. I'm doing all the stuff I do with this thing here, figuring it all out. What's the BC of a of a forty grain lead healed bullet? By the way, do you think I got that memorized? Okay, never mind. <laughs> you failed the test. <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's in my smartphone okay. in my program, right. and I pull I, I, and I pulled it right off of Litz's uh, bullet library. Is it in there? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So, uh, anyways, I I put that all in there. And I figured out how much wind we had. Did the DA on it, and I shot the first round, and I uh, was just at the right edge of the board. So then we had to walk in a little bit with the wind, but honestly, I was miles holding my vertical really cool. And then I just had to up at one, but what I had to do, uh, they had the the bar- target bunker there and they had trees behind it, is I had all of my uh, stuff that I could dial on that scope, but I still had to hold 20 mils. So it wasn't too bad because I'd take that bottom hash on that reticle, put it on the bullseye, look where the crosshairs were, bring it back up to that point and pst- <laughs> so, so uh, I was kind of, I was thinking this was going to be kind of fun, you know. So I think I, I think it could be a riot. And so uh, I showed up at that shoot, and everybody's signing up with their seven mm's and thirty oh sixes and three hundred megs, and 
I walk up there, 22 long rifle. <laughs> guy looked at me, he says, okay. So then it's about my turn to shoot, and I'm getting the gun out. And, and I had the bipod on it, just a Harris bipod. And, and I was just about ready to squeeze it off. And the guy says, whoa, you got to shoot off the bags. And I said, seriously? I said, rules are rules. I took the bipod off and put it on the bags. And now I got guys behind me heckling, just heckling like mm-hmm. crazy. Because I got my little box of 22 bullets there, you know. And I got yeah, my yeah. One, Get my one out, and and um, by God, it was 18 inches from the center of the bullseye. No kidding. I just wanted to be close. Yeah. But uh, I remember one of the guys, he said, you better be careful. He's probably going to beat you yet. And, but it was just neat because I took all the stuff that we pay attention to, all the little things and, and this and that for shooting these ELRs, and I did it in a twenty two, and that was, that was the fun part. I mm-hmm. So well, That's cool. It was an eye opener because the next thing you know, uh, another local event said no rim fires. <laughs> <laughs> so, I didn't but it was fun. They didn't want to be intimidated or whatever, but it was fun. So. Yeah, well, I like but, that. But yeah. they're, they're like like Ian said, there's a lot of a lot of choices on rifles. I started out with the 338 Lapua. You know that got me kind of ramped up for wanting to push it and push it. And you you kind of find out that you're in a stage. And it next thing you want to, you just want to go farther, and things start to creep up a little bit. You know, everybody says, "What do you got stuck in something like this?" I said, "A little bit of money, but that's that's the only hobby I got, you know, and it's justifiable." Then, so and I just love the challenge. And there are so many we we could spin off in so many different roads or avenues and discussing certain things. It puts it all together. Uh, one thing we haven't touched on is every scope that we mount on our rifles, we actually lock it down on a block. We got a measured 100 yards and with the tape rule, not by laser. And we actually track every scope that we ever mount on a gun to see how aggressive or whatever the threads are in there. And it, it, the Gen 2s are really, really close to perfect. It doesn't matter what manufactured it is. The threads, it's just, it's all in the tooling. And, and it's really good to check that because there again, the majority of the programs out there will, once you do that test, you know how much to actually correct it. And then it just takes care of itself. And that's a ghost that always gets a lot of folks because they, they thought they had everything right. But for some reason, it just seems like it's nothing's making sense. It's getting more aggressive, more aggressive. Maybe it really was going faster than I thought. Well, it could be just the aggressiveness in the thread. They call it the uh, sight correction factor. Cal- so, calibrating hmm. a scope. So Yeah, you guys know uh, the kind of machinery it takes to make uh, inner turret screws that are near perfect and uh, what those tolerances amount to in terms of microns. And it might be a half percent fast or half percent slow. And you actually characterize that with his test that he's talking about. Right. And the ballistic program has a little input that says site correction factor. And you, you literally type in 0.5%. Yep. And it'll take that into into uh, consideration when it gives you your come up, when it gives you your dope. Well, hmm. So 0.5% means nothing at 100 yards or even 1,000 yards. Right. But then yeah, 3,000 yeah. yards. Starts to accelerate. Yep. Yeah, wow. It's amazing just how all these variables extrapolate yeah. over distance. Oh, it, it totally is. Yeah. I mean, the smallest thing right. just becomes such a big thing at, at distance, which is it's just wild. Crazy. What do you say? We're, uh, we're here almost, almost at an hour and a half. We see we jump into some last calls here. Jeff, our last call is just anything 
mildly related to the topic as we as we bring it in for landing. But uh, we'll save you for last being the guest and, and being that the guests always have the best ones. I'll, I'll go first here since I'm already talking. I'm already on a roll. But I, I wanted to ask you guys for a, like I said, once again, because I believe Paul Neese might have even explained this at one point in one of the previous podcasts, but like a 60-second perhaps, or however long it takes, but just not a full uh, episode's worth. Explanation of DA again, density altitude, what? What's going on? What is it? It's like it involves a number of different things, right, all in one? It's humidity, temperature, and elevation. Okay. So in the morning, if you, were, if you weren't paying attention to density altitude and say you were shooting a sub-MOA target, maybe like a 5-inch target at 600 yards with the 260s and 65s or 308s, your dope is, and that's the adjustments in your, your uh, information you need, that is spot on in the morning. But all of a sudden, the sun's coming out. Next thing you know, it's 70, 80, 90, and you're blowing everything out the top of that target. Well, the density altitude that uh, most of these programs will monitor will sit there and actually cause you or tell you to aim lower because it's warming up, the DA's raising, and uh, it it can flip around and go the other way, too. It could could have a... And what I always like is here in Wisconsin... Uh, maybe Ian's rifle will max out for his adjustments at, say, 2,200. And then he goes out to Colorado, and the DA out there where we shoot for testing on our way down to New Mexico will be about 6,200. Oh, man, now I, can, now I can actually dial and shoot out to 2,600 yards. Oh, wow. And then you get over to Rant, New Mexico, and now your DA on a given day, if it's decent all, is going to be around 8,200. Now we can actually dial and aim the three thousand yards. It's so that's kind of how it's it works. The same gun, same scope, yep. everything. You're just yep. because it's, the DA has changed. Yep. The higher the DA, the slipperier the areas, and the, the bullet goes through and it carries mm. better because it's not getting. Is that because so, we have so much humidity here usually in Wisconsin? Yeah, and, well, and, that's part of it. Uh, air is a fluid, and this bullet is passing through the fluid. And you know, fluids can be thick; they can be thin. DA is just one way of combining a couple factors into one number that you can use to characterize the air. How easy is it going to be to pass a bullet through it or not? That's what DA is. Gotcha. Oh. Yep. Excellent. That was mine, Mark. You go for it. Man, number one, I can't believe we're here. When we uh, wrapped up Long Range 1003, I thought I could wash my hands of this whole Long Range thing. Yeah, and here yeah. we are in 1004. But... Um, <laughs> Man, It'll never go away. This was awesome, and th- I I came into this with about ten thousand questions and things to talk about. Luckily, I didn't have to ask any of them because you guys covered all of them, and uh, appreciate all the information, Jeff. And I appreciate you. I noticed your hat there, and I can tell that you're a Vortex long timer because I think that might be the first Vortex hat. That's an original. Oh, that's the first that's, symbol too. That's an OG it? right there. Yeah. Come on, there's, there's no, no G on this there's one? No T oh, on my gosh. One. There's got to be a T on There's it. no T no, on that one. No. You've got an original no T Vortex logo. I'll give you like 50, <laughs> oh, that's 50 the, bucks for that. <laughs> that's, not to, hey. that's, that's, nothing, that's nothing to be ashamed of. That's street cred right hey, you there. Got $50, uh, $50, I, still, I still got some of the original green shirts yet. They're still one of my favorites. That's a keeper. Very nice. Awesome. That is Very a keeper. Nice. So. Mark, I think also I'm going to give I'm gonna give you another last call. You always have more than one. Okay. We're going to get you a 22 that we can stretch out to 600 yards. I need to build that squirrel gun. (laughs) So I would say for mine, uh, I'm kind of encouraged with uh, how ELR is starting to get formed up around 
you know, there's lots of different ways to do ELR. I think it's been going on for probably 30 years or so, but to some people, ELR was kind of going out and shooting until you hit what you were aiming at, regardless Mm. of how many shots it took, which I guess there's nothing wrong with that. You know, they're not hurting anyone. It sounds like a fun kind of thing to do, but I'm kind of glad that uh, it's getting standardized to the point where, you know, that first shot does matter. It means different if you can hit something three times consecutively instead of once in 25 shots, something like that. So I think with that kind of standardization and that that sort of way of comparing how you're doing to people across not only this country but across the world, it makes it a little bit more fun, and hopefully we'll see some some gains there in terms of what we know and, and pushing that limit. That's You know, that's one thing I wanted to that crossed my mind too. It seems like it's it's in an interesting place right now where before like you talk there's no rules. Right. And now we have <laughs> I'm some, champion of the world. Right. You know, I made a world record. Well, what's that mean? Well, I shot 10,000 times and I hit it once, yep, you know. Right. And now we're in the, uh, where there's some rules, but like the rules are somewhat fluid and changing and it's it's just kind of still defining yeah. itself and I guess hopefully it just stays fun. Yeah, yep. yep. Well, that sport's exploding right now. It's just amazing if you look how much changed in the last three or five years in the industry even with this stuff. But uh, a couple things here. Um, I first started kind of getting hooked up at Vortex back in, we're trying to figure out, it was either 2005 or 2006. Early. That's where so the old logo came from. <laughs> yep. so, so it's been a while, and everything's going really well. I really enjoy the product. It works very well. We use the Vortex Razor Spotters. And one thing that's going to be kind of interesting this year is one of them has the hemorrhoid reticle in it, so we're going to see how that works. We've always had a good system, but it's going to be neat to maybe fine-tune it a little bit. Um, so we're going to work with that this year. And, you know, you made a comment on that, Ian. This is a really cool sport, and it doesn't matter what stage you're in it. There's tons of people out there that are willing to give you good advice, and it doesn't matter what stage you are, and there's never a stupid question. So... There's a, there's a lot of good potential, fun things to do with this sport. And, like, it's really neat when you start working with uh, individuals at a range or at your place. It's, it's just so neat to see people go beyond what they thought was possible. It's, it's just a good sport. So, Sweet. Cool. I like it. Last thing Jeff alluded to. I promise it's the last thing. Jeff alluded to it. <laughs> final, final, last call. That eyepiece is a 22-power eyepiece. You're going to be using it with ELR stuff. Yep. These scopes in front of us, Ian, you've got a 5 to 20, and there's a 4.5 to 27 Razor Gen 2 there as well. Now, to shoot 1,000 yards in F-Class, you're using Golden Eagle 15 to 60 power. Right. That's flip-flopped from what I would think. Isn't that weird? It's counterintuitive. You're using lower magnification for these ELR things, but but you can still see a target and you can still hit it. Well, it's funny because they're three-foot-by-three-foot painted white steel square targets. They've been standardized kind of at that form factor. It's actually not that hard to see them against a mountainside, these square white targets. And you don't need tons of magnification because, remember, it's a hit-no-hit sport. It's not a, hey, was I an eighth inch on the outside of the scoring line or on the inside yeah, of the scoring yeah. line? So that's kind of the big difference. And uh, But no, I think uh, these things, these Gen 1 razors test out at like 130 to 135 MOA have come up. That's that's all I needed to know to put this on. You know, <laughs> gra- grab a fistful and I'm yep, good. There you go. Yep, yep. yep. No, I just found that was interesting. Yeah, no. The old, the old magnification debate never ends. Well, all right. With that said, everybody, we've kept you on here for uh, for a while now, so we're gonna we're gonna let all you get back to your to your regular days. But thanks as always to everybody for listening out there. 
keep us keep us busy out here with your suggestions. People keep suggesting more and more topics. We love to hear it. You can hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, call in, email in, carrier pigeon, send us a message, message in a Coke bottle, whatever works. Appreciate it again, everybody. Thanks again, Jeff, for coming out. Thank you. We'll see you all later. Happy hunting and shooting, everybody. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show, maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like, so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released, so that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So, again, everybody, thanks, and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.